Welcome to the August 2018 broadcast of Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I am your host, Gil Manser, and our guest today is the Barcelona-born New York Times bestselling writer Edgar Cantero with his decidedly different new novel, This Body's Not Big Enough for the Both of Us. Edgar writes short stories, screenplays, and novels in three languages. That's Spanish, Catalan, and English. They often include women kissing, things exploding, and multiple versions of the same event presented like deconstructed Hollywood gangster films from the 1940s. Edgar Cantero, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Hello. Thank you for having me. Okay, your latest novel, This Body's Not Big Enough for Both of Us, features a unique individual as the hard-nosed private eye in San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about the twins. Yes, uh, uh, I had always wanted to do a, a noir parody kind of novel, but I thought that that was a weak theme on itself. Uh, I, w- I wanted to wait until I had an original private detective, something that was a little more appealing. And then I came up with this uh, guy, guys, mm-hmm. Izzy Kimrian, a private detective who is also a genetic chimera made up of a brother and a sister who are polar opposites sharing a single body. Right. And I thought, yes, that is original enough for a private detective. Right. So we, they were collectively known as A.Z. Kimrian, is uh-huh. that, that how you say it? Um, they are polar opposites, as you said. And Adrian has a high IQ, photographic memory. He's, uh, I guess you would say, the staid side, the the calm side of the, the, the duo. <laughs> Uh, Is that the word? That would be like maybe too positive a description for him. (laughs) Yes. The stick in the mud side of the the uh, two. uh, 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 They are uh, a perfectly uh, uh, balanced chimera. Okay. Uh, They uh, each one has a different organ, but uh, 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 none of them is in the majority. And the curious case is that uh, their brain is shared too. Mm-hmm. Adrian is the left brain, so he's the rational, logical side, and Zoe is the right brain, i.e. the uh, creative, passionate right. side. Right. You explain this in your book. Can you start right, right by the pink post it is? And we okay, are in, we are in, well, just it is one character explaining who they are to another character. Do I have to do the voices though? No, no. It's up. I don't know. They have different voices. Too. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's up to you. Uh, the part. Uh, yeah. Okay. Have you practiced doing that? Uh, not this part, but let me <laughs> let me try. Uh, well, they don't actually speak in here, so. No. Yes. They, this is a okay. dialogue, actually. Right. Kimrian doesn't have split personality. They are two people. It's called genetic chimerism. Looks like one individual, but it's actually a mosaic organism made up of two people's cells, each with its own DNA. Two siblings in one body. Right. You want to go on? Um, no, it's just, I'm not sure I want to do all that. Basically, it talks about how there's the creative type who paints, writes, and plays musical Oh, yeah, okay. I, 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 I have yeah, that okay. one here. All right. Uh, uh, Adrian holds the left hemisphere, the analytic brain. He has an IQ over 180, photographic memory, encyclopedic culture... He's the internet with Asperger's syndrome. Zoe is the right hemisphere, the creative brain. She paints, writes, composes, plays several instruments. She's also hyperactive, an infomaniac, and an addict to every substance she's tried once. Right. And she tries lots of things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even in this book. She is a very free spirit. Yes. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. So, 
basically they're hermaphrodites, and I'm not sure our listeners know what that means. It, it's it's re- commonly referred to as intersex now. It's just absolutely. I mean, like uh, 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 um, the correct term usually it's it's intersexual hermaphrodism. Hermaphroditism is a, a biological phenomenon that is extremely rare in humans, mm-hmm. although it's the norm in other organisms. Yeah, some who change. Uh, from one to the other, depending on their the no, it's more like one that has uh, gonads for both male and female, okay. and theoretically, yeah, it, it can play one role or another in each uh, uh, in each relationship. Right, uh, and that is extremely rare in humans, but it can happen sometimes. It is usually uh, the fruit of, of genetic chimerism, just like uh, a chimerian, and. Yeah, it is uh, one of the few cases where actually hermaphrodite is correctly applied to humans. Now, there was a famous one. Do you know about uh, Josephine Joseph, the herma- famous hermaphrodite from yes, the movie Yes, I've read Freaks? about it. Yes. And she was an actress in the circus side shows. This was very big in the 1930s. Uh-huh. And once, okay, I'll read you what it says. Like man, many sideshow hermaphrodites... She presented a half-and-half trick, women on the left, man on the right. One side of the body would be exercised, have their hair trimmed and tanned. The other side would be covered and unexercised, making it pale and flabby, so the chest resembled a woman's breast while the hair was grown out. The performer would then wear a split costume showing, you know, one side of the... There were usually men who were doing this or were designated as male, but they're basically, you know, actors... We They're don't not. we don't really know though whether uh, uh, Josephine Joseph was actually like we you know, just an intersexual person That's or, right. or yeah the the chimerism thing is actually you know is only discovered through DNA right it's kind of recent discovery in humans too but apparently it's uh, it can be more common than we think <laughs> did you ever read Herma McDonald Harris's book no oh you should pick it up sometime it's sometime remember in the late eighties I think it came out. And it's about a woman who was an opera singer during the gold dress era in California. And she was a true hermaphrodite. In fact, her manager was named Fred Height. Her name is Herma, H-E-R-M-A. <laughs> and you put the two together and you end up with the, the totality. And she would basically descend her penis and, and testicles when she wanted to be a male and then withdraw them in when she wanted to be female. Wow. Yeah. It's an interesting and very... I, it kept my attention, let's say. So is, yeah, look it, it up. It's when an you interesting get a talent, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, you also said that in you wrote online that uh, they, the Kimrians. Kimrians? Kimrians, uh, yeah. Kimrians hit the stores on July 31st, and I'll be hitting the road with them, and you're doing that right now. Absolutely. Come meet the twins, see me try to read as the stupid text keeps blasting through fourth walls like a wrecking ball. Now you're going to have to tell our listeners what the fourth wall is if they don't know. At the fourth wall, uh, uh, it's uh, you know it's uh, the imaginary wall separating the stage from the audience in a theater. Right. So every time that wall is broken, it means that the actors are uh, acknowledging the audience and actually admitting that they are in a you know in a play. Mm-hmm. And I don't usually let my characters do that, but I, as a narrator, I do that uh, uh, very often. Uh, I like to acknowledge that I am in a book, and I I like to uh, resort to uh, you know mentioning uh, paragraphs and lines and you know the page itself. Mm-hmm. 
uh, uh, that's part of my search to try to always uh, uh, say things in in a way that sounds original that has not been said before. I like to think outside the box like that. And, um, well, you know, I think breaking the fourth wall is uh, one of the few resources that I have available. You know, I, when I am a writer, all I have are essentially words. All I have is 26 letters and punctuation signs. So uh, 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 I'll go for this any time. Well, the interesting thing is I think you'd use this most at the opening part of the book, the scenes that take place and then are, are analyzed in their office, which is straight out of uh, Dashiell Hammett. It looks like Archer and uh, um, tell me who's the other one, Spade. Spade uh-huh. in Archer's office with the the the, the letters, letters on, on the glass on panel. The glass, yeah, right? absolutely. And the the way the room is set up, they do not have a secretary though. So, no, not no, at all. No. no, no. But they've got the femme fatale. They have the femme fatale, and they have the teeth pummeling thugs. Teeth pummeling thugs. Yes, right, because absolutely. those are the only two kinds of people that uh, will. Uh, walk through a door with their names and private eyes <laughs> stenciled beneath. Exactly. And then all sorts of mayhem happens involving yes. uh, bullets flying, people ducking, chess pieces scattering, and that fan in the ceiling. Yeah. Do we I, want to tell what happens to the fan in the ceiling? Uh, you know... Uh, it plays a very uh, important role in the story and not just an aesthetic one as it usually does in, in most uh, noir stories. Right. <laughs> We're back to Casablanca, focusing on the, sand, the exactly. fan and the ceiling, right? Actually, I'm thinking of the uh, of the parody in Raiders of the Last Ark. Okay. The, the, you do that with the dead yes. uh, monkey, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that works. So obviously you were, you were thinking of movies when you made this, I, I would assume, because you talk about setting the scene and this and that. It's not. It doesn't sound like a novel that you're referring to. It sounds like a. Well, I try to. Uh, I try to uh, draw inspiration from everything, not just books, like books, movies, TV shows, comics, video games too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like uh, 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 they are. They are all uh, media to tell stories. Right. I always say that I only write books because it's uh, uh, the one way to develop an idea that requires only me. To one person, like to make a movie, you need Me, like three hundred people. people in one. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I am one, and I, I can barely put up with myself actually. Uh, so th- that's the reason I write books. Essentially, is because it's the easier way. But I think that pretty much, you know, uh, books, movies, video games. Well, we we are all pretty much doing the same thing. Here. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got a Rashomon, you know, the Japanese film where you get multiple point of views of the same event. Yeah. You look at it three times in a row. And, and you see different things each time, and that's exactly what you do at the opening of your book. Because he's explaining it. He's being interviewed by a policeman. Yeah. Or he, she is being interviewed by a policeman. They. Which is it? They are being, they they are, are they being are, interviewed they are. by a policeman. And uh, they tell the story with purple prose, lots of alliteration. That's true. I yeah. love that. Yeah, and I could tell you that, <laughs> yes. Do you have fun writing that part? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, um... That prologue is the one part that I uh, that my editor made me rewrite. The original prologue uh, contained a, a scene that was a little too similar to something we had done already in Meddling Kids, my mm-hmm. previous novel. Right, that's the one that so, got New York Times. Exactly. Summer. So I I, I I rewrote this scene. I, we needed a new action sequence, but essentially the same 
structure. We have to prove this, you know, this law of noir that only <laughs> femme fatales and, mm -hmm. and, and teeth bubbling thugs are coming through that door. Right. And to do that, actually, one uh, the, the main inspiration for that scene was uh, the, the highway scene in the Deadpool movie. Oh. You know, yeah. I, I saw that scene that like 25 yes. times in yes. a row to see like, you know how uh, uh, how it starts like showing just uh, a few shots of the of the development of the action sequence. Then it, it goes back to the start of the car chase. Mm -hmm. You know and the things that happen in slow motion, that kind of thing. Uh, Gotta have slow motion. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, lots of, and lots of gunpowder in the air. Exactly. Right. So uh, I I was trying to do something like that and. Well, I don't know if I did justice to Deadpool, but uh, I'm pretty happy with that prologue. Yeah, that cold opening. Well, I think you've created something that's uh, distinctive and unique. And I like the fact that it's an explanation to the policeman. Because that allows for some, I mean, to talk about dialogue. We, we've got the movie script right there for this sequence. Yes, like there are, there, are, there are several timelines there. Yeah, yeah. And we jump from one to the other. Right. Yes. And the man keeps trying to come back to what is, quote, reality, unquote. Well... This is reality, but <laughs> again, yeah. yes, yeah, it's it's fun, it's great. Now, the next part of the book, I guess we'll call it the next part. We've kind of come to a conclusion. You want me? To, you want to read what the conclusion is of of that? Uh, it's right. It's marked here. It's on page um, twenty six to twenty seven. And then time resumed, and Marduk completed a full revolution on the fan, and the newsy bullet went right into Rock's skull and Gravel aimed the revolver at the charging private eye, and the propane bottle exploded, and Kimrian rammed against the revolver and the thug in the window behind him and crashed through it, inches ahead of the deflagration, trailing them out into the blue sky. And the time it took to free fall down three stories, wind slapping their faces at 0.81 meters per second square, Kimrian clambered on the thug, all the way screaming, My turn on top, babe! 335 pounds of combined weight dropped on the roof of the police car that had just parked in front of the building, sinking its blaring siren and flashing lights beneath the dashboard where the necklace thug stayed while Kimrian bounced off the flesh and broken bone sack, flipped six times in the air, and landed face up on the road two steps away from the incoming pole hide cable car whose driver jammed on the brakes until sparks welded the brake pad to the wheel and pulled the juggernaut to a full stop just as the front right wheel was literally rolling on top of a strand of Kimrian's hair. Thank you. Only when I'm reading aloud, I, I notice that I use too few punctuation marks, but whatever. <laughs> well, that's why you mark your own up for when you when you read <clears throat> that. I thought that kind of brought the what's the word I want? The verisimilitude, the real action, all kind of combined in one amazing sequence. This did this, did this, did this, did this, and then that caused that, one after the other. Yeah. Uh, uh... I am always struggling to find, you know, ways in in literature to uh, uh, convey the sense of speed mm -hmm. that an action sequence has in a movie. Right. And uh, uh, I take many licenses, like you know, <laughs> uh, 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 skipping punctuation marks is right. one of them. Right. You know, uh, uh, writing this kind of sentences where I lose my breath <laughs> is another. But uh, I kind of hope that, you know, that, that that forces the reader to uh, uh, to go through it at the speed I want him to. Uh, well, go when through you it. read that yourself, even silently, you have to take a breath in the middle that you didn't expect you're going to have to take. Uh, I, I, I hope that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it did for me. Good. So 
great. Now, we're going to move forward on because uh, one of the private eyes, I guess you'd say friends or acquaintances in the, in the police department, come to them and they, he needs help. Uh-huh. And the the problem is is that he has been given an undercover. I'm not giving away too much, am I here? No, no, don't okay. worry. Not so He's far. got an undercover job uh, down in San Carnal, uh-huh. and uh, which is some very gangster-driven place. We'll it's call it. a Californian sin city. Yeah. California sin city, and uh, there's threats against the gangster's life, and he's in the. Policeman is acting as his bodyguard, I guess, in a sense. Not really. He has his own bodyguards, but he's there to make sure that they're doing their job. Yeah, well, he's has become like a, a, a sort of uh, the kingpin's right hand. Right. And the now one that always over his shoulder. Exactly. Right. And now that uh, the kingpin is uh, probably about to take a very rushed decision and declare war to a rival gang. Mm-hmm which uh, really goes against the interests of the police who are trying to topple him. Because mm-hmm. uh, they've got a, a long game they're playing. Exactly. The undercover agent needs to, uh, to uh, prove that uh, his, son murder, his son's murder is not related to a rival gang, and they bring in Kimbrian to prove that. Right. Well, there is a big major clue on the body. It is the... Oh, yeah. well-known. The red chrysanthemum, which is not a chrysanthemum. Right, <laughs> which is not a chrysanthemum. Yeah, that's right. And that's important, and only the uh, the twins are able to see that because everybody else assumes that because it's a chrysanthemum that the hit was done by... By the Yakuza, by the, yeah, by the Japanese uh, mafia. And that was a symbol that they would leave behind. Yes. Which, yeah, which, of course, it turns out it wasn't, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, you know, uh, uh, Kimbrian at the beginning is not even brought to do the detective thing. He's essentially brought in to prove that uh, the Japanese didn't do it regardless of whether the Japanese did it or not. Because they, he's on a, another long game. Exactly. Right. So we have conflicting uh, end results that that are working in the middle of this. And then there's this third entity the the assassin who has a completely different perspective but we won't say who that is at all uh, that's better not <laughs> that's, that's that's something you need to find out and be surprised later now we meet an interesting character here we meet uh, the 11 year old daughter of the gangster oh yeah yeah tell me about ursula her. ursula tell me about ursula uh well ursula is like uh the girl in the story. She is like the real femme fatale. We've, we've had a, a, another femme fatale in the prologue, but that one, you know, we, 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 we dismissed her early enough. Like, uh, she was she, Jessica, she wasn't a challenge for the Kimberians at all. She was Jessica all. Rabbit, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, actually, Jessica Rabbit had more of a personality than her. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, I, 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 wanted to bring, I wanted to bring in something special as the girl in this story. I thought, you know, uh, uh, well, Adrian is implied to be an asexual and Zoe is actually pansexual. Uh, I wanted to be original with the girl, maybe not make it a girl, make it it a boy, a man. I don't know. I thought at some point that, you know, an adult was no challenge at all for Kimbrian Mm -hmm. and that 
it would be uh, nice to see how they handle, for instance, a child, mm-hmm. a child with a crush. Right. And, and she has a crush on half of Kimberly. Exactly. Yeah. On the nice half, on Zoe. Right. And is that the nice half? She's the. That's an interesting that, no, choice it, it, of words. It is interesting, there. like because uh, I think other people look at her and say that was the bad half. No, it's just. But again, you know, I, uh, good, bad. That's the one part. <laughs> you know, these are two characters, and, and that forced me to like uh, break every quality into a dichotomy. Okay, so uh, one is the rational, then one, the other one has to be the passionate one. One is the male; the other has to be the female. Although that's even though somewhat, I think that yeah, yeah, that gender is a little more complicated than that. But whatever, I had to do it. And the only thing that really is not in one column or the other is good or evil, good or bad. I wanted to make sure that the Kimrians both seem reliable at times, but not quite, and that you kind of like them, but you don't feel completely comfortable with either of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call Zoe the nice one because she's the one who actually, he, she's the people's person. She is actually the one but who has friends. I think she's the one that... She's that, not the one suffering from Asperger's. Exactly. She's one the one that the other characters like, in right. a way, I think. But again, yes, she uh, lacks logic. She is completely unreliable. She is the kind of person who uh, checks his, uh, if a gun is loaded by actually shooting it at her face. So <laughs> she is a, a comically unprepared for the real world. Comically and, unprepared for the real world. Yes. And you created her that way intentionally. Uh, yes, because Zoe has this perception that uh, the real world is actually a fiction work. Again, this is like the fourth wall, mm-hmm. you know. She... Uh, she agreed to be a private detective, which is a job that probably better suits Adrian. Right. You know, because it's an analytical job. And she agreed to it because she likes the aesthetics. She likes uh, 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 to star in a noir kind of story. Right. And and, and she, she perceives the world, her world, I think, like a movie or a book. She thinks that these are the rules that apply. Uh, and you can go back and reshoot. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, not you can go back and reshoot, but nothing too bad is going to happen to her because she's the hero. Right. And heroes you get know, and heroes by can people. die, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and villains also have to uh, follow a certain set of rules. And, you know, and, and the universe has to obey these laws. But Adrian, no- of course, doesn't think that these laws apply. Adrian's <laughs> reality is yours and mine. Right. But then again, Zoe's right. She lives in a book, and this body is not big enough for both of us. So, you know, she has some insight there that Adrian lacks. There's an interesting phrase. Zoe lives in the book. Yes. But when you read it, when I read it, I guess I'll be personal about this, I didn't see her in a book. I saw her as a a character walking the streets of San Francisco. And if I would meet her, what would I think? And it depends, if you will, that she's very mercurial. So it depends almost on the That's circumstance. That's a very good word, mercurial. I Isn't it? it? Yeah. yeah. She changes <laughs> yeah, perspectives yeah. very quickly. Volatile, yeah. Yeah, volatile. And um, I don't think you'd know ahead of time how she was going to react to something. 
At least we, you and me. You would because you've, you've created her. But, I mean, the rest of us wouldn't know. Yeah, but I wouldn't know either because <laughs> how do you actually know when you're facing Kimrian whether you're talking to Adrian or to Zoe? Well, she takes care of that in part of the book by using a, an injection so that... No, the injection is different. The injection is something that Adrian uses to put Zoe to sleep. It's not supposed to work the other way around anyway. And yet again, how do you know if you're speaking to Adrian and not Zoe? It's uh, difficult to tell unless they tell you themselves. Well, on the book cover, there's two faces for the character, but in reality, there's only one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the, the, character was a, uh, the character in the cover was a graphic uh, license, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, 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 you have a, a private detective with one face, uh, differently colored eyes. Mm-hmm. One is brown, the other is green. Mm-hmm. And... And looking at that asymmetrical face, you simply do not know what to expect. You, uh, you don't know if the person you are talking to at that moment is Adrian or Zoe. Actually, you are talking to both people at the same time, but only one of them will answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't really know which one. You don't really know which Does one. Does the voice and, change when they talk? No, I don't think so. And I, 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 I wanted to make sure, actually, that this ambiguity is present throughout the novel. Like... Uh, uh, Sometimes, yes, uh, we uh, state when it's Adrian speaking or when it's Zoe, mm-hmm. but for most of the characters, they don't know. They have to guess. You have to guess by the content of the sentence. If it's something smart and snarky in an annoying way, it's Adrian. Uh-huh. And if it's something nonsensical, it's probably Zoe. Well, you need to know if you're going to loan them your car, which one of them is going to be driving. And the problem is, this, you know, both of them are going to be driving anyway, so how do you stop that? <laughs> but uh, Zoe is a much more uh, freewheeling spirit behind the wheel. She likes to go above 100 or whatever it says on the top of the pedometer. Yeah, I don't think that Adrian is uh, uh, particularly uh, abiding by... by, by uh, the rules uh, of physics? Exactly, by the, by, by the uh, traffic uh, code. But... Uh, because, you know, at the end of, of the day, they are both uh, hard-boiled heroes, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and speed limits are meant to be broken in their world again. But, um, sorry, the question there, <laughs> there was... No, no, it's just who would you give the car keys to? Who would, which would one... If they were going to drive your car? If they were going to drive my car... Uh, I simply, you know, uh, I just fasten my seatbelt and pray. <laughs> That's the only answer. Okay. That's you, a good you, answer. you, you absolutely don't know, you know, uh, uh, which one you're interacting with. You right. don't know who's driving. When you're talking, you know who's talking. When you're kissing them, you don't know who's kissing back. Well, that's so. a, that. Yeah, we get into that a bit too. It's time for a break. You are listening to Word by Word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media KRCB FM with a guest. From the Barcelona-born New York Times best-selling writer Edgar Cantero and his decidedly different new novel and the characters that he's created for that new novel, the, this body's not big enough for both of us. As in the first half hour, we chatted about the hard-boiled private eye genre, hermaphrodites, desert gangster lairs, and nymphomania, so stay tuned for a spattering of other interesting topics during the next half hour right here 
on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Okay. You've got two uh, vehicles, which are very important in the novel. So how did you pick which ones you would use? One is, uh, well, you tell us about them. You know I'm talking the two famous vehicles in the novel. Actually, no, I can only think of one. Well, you've got a armor-plated Jaguar. Oh, right, the Jaguar. Okay, why why a Jaguar? Why a Jaguar? Yeah. I have no idea. Really? Why not a Jaguar? Well, no, I mean, that works, but... No, but the, the car I was interested maybe was uh, uh, the the other one, the Camaro, uh, is it Camaro yeah, Z28, Yeah, yellow Camaro Z28, yeah. Uh, the Jaguar is kind of uh, the villain's car, and... Well, yeah, but you, they have to have a cool car, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But you know what? Like, my idea of a cool car probably doesn't match yours. I uh, uh, well, let's see. We're different generations, so that may be true. Yeah, and different continents, which right. also. Uh, uh, is so a, in is Spain, what car would the gangster drive? I absolutely don't know, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in Spain we don't have uh, glamorous gangsters like oh, that. Okay. They would drive a Honda, huh? Yes, very likely. Right. No, okay, maybe uh, 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 something. Uh, Fiat 500. <laughs> yeah, one of those uh, 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 big uh, midlife crisis palliating uh, SUVs, gotcha. something like that. Yeah. But this is not that. This is a Jaguar, which you, I don't think you specify the year. Uh, no, we, I didn't. No, we might be able to figure it out from some of the clues. Uh, but I don't, you know, it's just not a car that I see as armor plated. I don't know why. I guess it could be. I, I think I think that has to always seemed to you know big bulky cars kind of thing. A Jaguar has a, a sleekness to it. Well, uh, I needed something that was I guess that fitted uh, the luxury sedan category, and uh, and that looked you know uh, uh, heavy duty, mm-hmm. you know something that looked tough. Mm-hmm. I guess I just Googled those exact words, and Jaguar was the first car to come up. That's fun, because it smells like leather inside and has a V12 engine. Fantastic. Yeah, good, yeah. And maybe I actually did the same for the Camaro, too. Oh, I thought that was a secret of yours, that you really wish you'd uh, had one or at least uh, driven one. Well, uh... I mean, don't they give you Let me start by saying this. Like, I don't even drive. Okay. So, uh... Again, when I say uh, uh, the kind of cars that I like, I'm not considering their drivability at all. Right. I'm just considering the looks, how slick they are. Right. Uh, for uh, European cars, for some reason, I'm a nostalgic, and I like the kind of car that is shaped like a, a cardboard box. You know, that kind of... Like a Volvo. Like a Lada. A Lada. Okay, well, that's even... Yeah, that, that's that kind of thing. I, I, I people's love... People's cars you can get. I right. love the Renaults when they were named after numbers. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the Citroën. Yeah, that too. Yeah. And I went with uh, Camaro as the uh, you know as the the one car with charisma because I might have seen it in some movie and I thought that it was it looked really cool but I can't even remember which one maybe Vanishing Point I don't know. Mm-hmm. Zabriskis, yeah. Uh, I think it was in that. I know uh, we had a TV show called uh, 
tell me what it was, the one where the guy drove the Camaro. I'm going to completely block on this. Da-da-da-da. Anyway, he, he kept getting a different one every year because, of course, the company would give him a new one. So, Logan. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a cool car. It's a muscle car, American muscle car for sure. Lots of, I think it's got a 500 engine or 540 engine in it, as I recall. I, I probably forgot the specs as Doesn't soon as matter. I wrote it. Anyway, them. it's it's a big, powerful beast of a car. Right. Good. That was exactly what we were going Heavy for. Heavy suspension. <laughs> That's right. And they take it to the edges of its uh, its specs when they drive it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I, I like the idea of having uh, uh, cars featured in my books that kind of grow to be characters themselves. Mm-hmm. And and Madeline Kids, my previous novel, there was an, uh, what was it? A Chevrolet Vega. Right. Uh, a station wagon. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it was the uncoolest car Uncool. imaginable for that kind of adventure. The only thing worse might have been a Rambler, but you're close. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, it, 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 I think I can say it survived the whole adventure. And I, I <laughs> want to think that you know, it was uh, the people, the readers, uh, got to uh, uh, develop some sympathy for that terrible car towards the end. Towards right. the, oh, God, okay, he saved lives, and this car saved lives and, 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 and escaped very tight situations and probably ended up like a wreck. But, you know, but still, yeah, it, it, it's the kind of car that, in which, in, in whose cars you can see how fun the adventure has been. Right. Now, it's interesting, Madeline Kids, for those who haven't read it, and, and I would suggest they might, it involves a, a group of teenage detectives uh, in a small mining town. I'm t- Where are they? In Oregon somewhere. In Oregon, yes. And um, we find we meet them again when they're all grown up, and all kinds of things have happened to each one of them. Yes. Which impact um, how they relate to each other and the mystery that's behind it all. So... Go find it. It's called Meddling Kids, also by Edgar Cantaro. So are you um, are you in the detective novel genre now? Or are, are these I can't I don't know how you define this this book that we're talking about today. Maybe I don't know, uh, maybe it's a coincidence. I like to dip into different genres. Uh because I like working Within the you know within the walls of a genre, mm-hmm. I like to use a you lot like of the constraints of it. Kind of yes, I yeah. like to have some guidelines. You know, I like to uh, when you're inside a genre, you know, you you, you create a set of expectations mm-hmm. and then you are free to follow them or break them. That's uh, you know that's very interesting. Um, my first book in English was the Supernatural Enhancements, which was a sort of gothic horror that. fiction. Okay. Uh, then it was followed by Meddling Kids, which was horror again, but in a less psychological, a, yeah, more okay. let's uh, splatter monsters against the wall kind of. Uh, <laughs> kind <laughs> well, of I don't know. And it's a pretty scary uh, yeah, premise. I, it, it was a, a lot more, you know, uh, uh, much more physical, I think, you mm-hmm. know, much more violent. And then uh, this body is not big enough for both of us. I guess it's, it's uh, yeah, it's just a... a, a Straight up noir. Yeah, but it's it has a comic book feel to it, so it doesn't feel as, at least to me reading it, it didn't feel as dangerous. You know, I could look at it and say, oh, well, that's, you know, I know this is over the top and this is this and something's going to happen. Well, but- yeah, the stakes are high uh, 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 and yet it's quite, 
humorous in mm-hmm. a way. Yes, that's something that happens in, I think, all of my books, I'm afraid. I, I, I am, you know, I don't take myself too seriously. Mm-hmm. and Well, that's good, isn't it? I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the opposite is worse, actually, taking yourself too seriously. Uh, so I, I, I like to work in a genre, but I, I, I also like to acknowledge within the book that, you know, we're writing, I am writing this and you are reading it for the sake of entertainment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we might as well have fun with it. You know, we might as well throw in some jokes. We might as well bend, uh, the laws of physics for our own purposes. Mm-hmm. How did you become a writer? I don't know, but okay. You didn't wake up and, and no, I didn't get it. One day I, I, said, I didn't I'm step out of the closet and say, "Okay, I'm a writer." Okay. No, I remember. I remember uh, writing down ideas mm-hmm. since uh, childhood for a lot of stuff. In you notebooks know, for, or how'd you keep them? Since uh, I use this thing, no, 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 no. Yeah. I, 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 I typed a lot uh-huh. even before I had my first computer. Um, you talk manual typewriter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two fingers? Yeah, absolutely. I still uh, work only with two fingers. Uh, <laughs> I, I I had ideas for, you know, for uh, uh, not just for books, for comics, for uh, uh, cartoons, for movies, for anything. Uh, all I did was write it down. And then at some point later, I guess I, I, uh, in my late teens, I decided that, or I noticed that... Uh, Writing books, writing short stories, writing novels, novellas, it was the easiest way to take uh, that idea from seed to completion. Mm-hmm. It was the, the easiest way to actually have a finished work. And that is essentially while I write and while I not do movies. <laughs> uh-huh. You did cartoons for a while too? Uh, yes, I am a cartoonist and, and yeah, I can draw comics. Mm-hmm. I can do that too. You do the drawing and the dialogue? Yeah. As well, yeah. But uh but I mean that's so much harder than uh, more time writing. consuming. More time consuming and, and, and no and, and and it presents a lot more uh of technical difficulties. Right. We've had some graphic novelists on the show before and they talk about how, you know, in in two years I'll be finished with this first draft. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't yeah. even imagine it. Like the longest comic I ever drew was uh twenty four pages, I think. Uh, it took me like the best part of a, of a year, and I think at least a whole summer. That's for sure. Working mm-hmm. like eight hours a day, and it was only you know uh, just a fanzine, something I self published in the copy shop. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I I still think in comic terms sometimes, but I, I I've already resigned myself to, you know, uh, stay stay stick to writing. And, and let other people let other people draw for me, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, that would make sense. Yeah, that's a, that'd be a good uh, way to do it. You do the script and find some illustrators. Yes, I work for a, a magazine, a satirical magazine, back in Spain, El Jueves. Mm-hmm. What is it? El Jueves, the Thursday, and um, well, I, I assume I, it comes out on Thursday. No, actually, it comes out on Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> now wait a minute. <laughs> we got you, and. Uh, I used to. Uh, I started there as a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Well, I started there as a, uh, as a uh, screenwriter because uh, the company had uh, expanded into TV too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big magazine, 
and I started publishing comics there. But uh, since I moved to the U.S., uh, uh, you know, I I couldn't take my my scanner or my good computer with me. I don't even have like a desk large enough to draw on. So since then, I I, I just uh, write and let an artist in Barcelona draw the comics for me. Gotcha. So do you set it up when you do write comics? Do you do you set up each panel? Is that what they're called? Yeah. Uh, usually, when I write comics, like I don't I don't usually write a script which is what uh, uh, most professionals do, mm-hmm. I kind of sketch the whole thing because it's ah, just easier like to just... Like a storyboard. Yeah, kind of. You know, even show the whole layout of the page. Oh. Like if I want, a, a, you know, a splash frame or, or the order in which I, I would like things to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do that, yeah. I sketch it because I think it's it's easier for me and it's clearer for the artist. Spanish comics read from left to the right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Japanese, they don't. No, yeah, yeah, right. so, yeah. Just checking. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've seen any, so I'd have to look. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, that's a, that's kind of interesting you're still doing that. Are you living in this country now? Yes, for a year I've been living in New York. Ah, how do you find that? Uh, well, I... Because I, you, you were very... Uh, you, you were laxing po- waxing poetic about San Francisco earlier today. Uh, I was, absolutely. I love it. Uh and I love New York too. I have to say that you know, I, I've all my life I've been like uh, uh, starstruck about this country. Mm. Uh, I've, I've I've consumed American entertainment, uh, everything. I mean, books, comics, mm-hmm. uh, TV shows, movies, video games. All my life. Right. And being here, you know, feels uh, unreal in a way. In a, it in is a way. unreal right now, as a it, matter of fact. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. for uh, uh, different and uh, uh, more bleaker reasons. But um, there are very small things here, and I, I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, really small things, like, uh, details in the urban landscape and, and that kind of thing that I, I had only seen on screens mm-hmm. before I came here. Mm-hmm. And now they are, you know, <laughs> they are part of my reality. And yeah. I kind of feel sometimes like... Like Zoe Kimbrian herself, like I am in a movie, in a work of fiction, that my life is happening on a screen because, you know, the real world is actually Europe. And this is. The real world is actually Europe. Yes. And this is. And this is this, what? uh, This is. Oz uh, or something out here? This is Hollywood. Hollywood. Okay. That makes sense. The whole country is Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm not sure. And they say it's a bubble. New York would not like that, but that's interesting. (laughs) Yes. So uh, have you, you've been traveling with your book. Yes. You've been seeing different parts of the country that you hadn't been into before? I have. I, I've ticked uh, several states off my list, yes. You, oh, you've got a list of ones you want to visit? I have a list of all of them, actually. Oh, well, that, yeah, I've only <laughs> been to, what, what is it now, 44, so I've still got a few to well, go Well, there's to. six to go. That's right. Uh, haven't done Alaska yet. Okay. See, I, I would love to see Alaska. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, maybe we should set up a time and go and see Alaska. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I hope if, if an Alaskan bookstore in Anchorage is, is listening I, <laughs> and they want to contact my publisher for an event, like, no, that's, I'm that's open. That's a plug. That's a plug. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Reply. Um, so who, who published this? I can't remember. Uh, Doubleday. Doubleday. Okay. So if you need to talk to Edgar Cantero because you have a bookstore in Alaska, just contact Doubleday and they will get you together with him. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, that's good. Great. So what can we reveal in the second part, in the gangster lair, we'll call it, with its... Uh, I know. I want you to read one section about where we where we're introduced to it at the swimming pool. Now, this is going to give us a, a, a setting of the gangsters, uh, where the gangster lives. A Nubian nymph tucked her bikini bottoms, capered along the diving board, bounced off into the air imbued with blissful laughter and solar glares, and dove smoothly into the science swimming pool. A beach ball bounced between rainbow-nailed hands, black and blonde and pink-haired heads spraying water in slow motion toward the deck chairs, where female bodies endured the sun like sinuous dunes and the vaults of pagodas of ancient cities along the Silk Road. Butterflies danced to slow riggy, and the mustachioed barista from the love boat shook a margarita while listening to the security guard's frequency on his earpiece as they ordered the gates to close after Danny, who was now walking up the path from, from the garage, talking to himself. Okay, well we can see it. It's, it's every James Bond movie that ever made, every, um, especially the ones that you, you made reference to later, that it's straight out of a... Who's, who's the James Bond that you liked and referred to? The uh, uh, I, I can't remember. I kind of like all of them, but uh, did I mention one in, in specifically? You did, yeah. I, I can't remember which one. Of, um, so tell me... Roger Moore? Roger Moore. Okay. Yes, yeah. thank you. That was it. The Roger Moore James Bond yeah, yeah. And James Bond was a big influence for this in a way. <laughs> okay, see? absolutely. Yeah, not in the uh, not in the setting. Yeah, because it's not about you know international espionage. Yeah, this this was to... like a, a more limited case. But uh, I I I remember when I was writing this that I wanted the Kimrins to be like my own 007 franchise. Mm-hmm. Not in the theme specifically specifically, but in. Uh, in the way I would like to have several books not exactly uh, uh, interconnected but that present different adventures with the same format like maybe the long cold opening before the title page Mm -hmm. and the same recurring characters like you know your Q your M your Money Penny that kind of thing right I, I, I expect no I don't expect but I would I would love my the Kimrians to be my James Bond. Well, you've done that, and you've set that up. It's interesting, as you mentioned it to me, because that's the James Bond film format. Is you have, And the same thing now with Mission Impossible. You have a long before the credits yes. uh, event, which really not necessarily have anything to do with the rest of the movie. Exactly. It doesn't. Right. It, it has some, uh, you know, uh, slight repercussions. It's mentioned after the title page. Right. But, yeah, it's not really important. It's just, you know... Uh, 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 like a sample of how the Kimrians work. Mm-hmm. Or James Bond worked. That's right. I remember the one where he, he gets out of the water in a wetsuit, unzips it, and he's wearing the tuxedo underneath. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool movies. Um, <laughs> very dated and sexist today, but cool movies anyway. I definitely love them, yes. Yeah. Uh, like some of them have, have aged terribly. That's true. That's right. <laughs> you, usually the ones with Roger Moore. Yeah, <laughs> well, and, and some of the, the Sean Connerys too, but people are more lenient to Sean Connery because, you know, it's Sean Connery. It's Everybody Sean, likes Sean Connery. Everybody likes Sean Connery. But, That's true. That's true. We won't have to go and get it. So what other films influenced you when you were growing up? What What do you remember going to and say, I've got to see that again? Did you watch them in movie theaters or on home on TV? Uh, both. <laughs> I love action films. Okay. I love uh, uh, the action genre itself 
which is a, 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 a genre that is difficult to translate to books mm -hmm. because, you know, how are you going to write a, a book that is uh, uh, made only of action sequences? Like some people complain that just the action sequences in, in, in an Elmore Leonard novel, right. you know, like they feel a little too slow, too detailed. They don't have the beat. It's very difficult to do that. Yeah, but you've cleverly done it by doing the the major action sequence at the beginning and telling it again and again and having it broken up. So you don't have that. Uh, you don't get tired of it. I'm not, I'm not saying it gets tiring. It It's just, you know, it's very difficult to keep up the rhythm, to, to, to have a fight or a car chase. Mm -hmm. And keep the readers following the action while uh, uh, the action is, is moving fast enough for them that it's hard to catch up. You know, it's, it's a very difficult balance there. Uh, movies do it, but, you know, movies have their own time. Yeah, uh, they dictate it. Right. So you, 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 you are just, you know, you are following or you are dragged, but still you are with the movie. Uh, in the book, it's kind of different, and I don't know how to solve it. And it's actually one of the things that uh, I am obsessed about as a writer is how to write uh, uh, action sequences in a way that is uh, both clear and engaging. Mm -hmm. We have several explosions in the book. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, a book needs explosions. It's one of the things that <laughs> I have a quota for. You know? Is that true? Absolutely. Like, and what's the minimum number of explosions per novel? I, and do you remember, for instance, the... Uh, in the Die Hard movies, yes. uh, uh, of which I'm a big fan, I always uh, uh, remember this example. In the first Die Hard movie, it starts with uh, Bruce Willis uh, uh, landing in L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes to the building where his wife works, and they have an argument. Well, first there's the car trip there. They have an argument. By the time the terrorists appear first, you're like 15 minutes into the movie, mm -hmm. right? In Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third in the franchise, right. which was also directed by John McTiernan, the opening credits have not finished and something explodes already. Mm -hmm. That means, you know, I think it's part of this uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, dwindling attention span of the MTV generation, mm. uh, of uh, something, you know, of which I am deeply affected. And uh, Are, Do you consider yourself part of that generation? The no, I mean the MTV generation. You know, I, 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 I'm not old enough to remember when MTV was cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was just there. But yes, I am. Uh, 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 I am part of the music video generation. Music videos is the one thing I, I, I never get tired of watching. A lot of Absolutely. these action directors are came from the movie music videos. That's true, and yeah. I, I think it shows. Like one of my favorite directors was. Uh, uh, the late uh, Tony Scott, the mm -hmm. brother of Ridley Scott, yeah. he started with uh, uh, music videos. Uh, yes, I, I, I think uh, action movies, if they have evolved in one way, is in, in, in giving us uh, 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 the action as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they, 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 they will not let you finish your popcorn without having blown up a building. Mm -hmm. And I, I I go for that too. My editor, I have to say, he goes for that too. Like I I remember he saw the first version of the cold opening and said, "No, things have to explode sooner." <laughs> <laughs>
Well, it does. Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like uh, that's one of the reasons why there are so many time jumps there. But because the, uh, chronologically, the explosions came last, so I had to pull them to the beginning. I hear you. Now, the other thing, of course, is what you've done is you've used that movie technique where, you know, you say you encapsulate a whole bunch of things and we watch it and we don't realize it's taken eight minutes to see, right? But yeah. then you snap back to the scene that happened just before it and it's like been one minute, you know, and you don't have a problem with that, you know? It's because you've your brain has been able to compress the things together and you're doing that on Yeah, the I guess, yes, uh, uh, um Again, yeah, I, 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 uh, in writing, you have uh, uh, several resources. You know, you, yeah, you can you can obviously expand time and contract it. Mm -hmm. You can dedicate two paragraphs for one second, mm -hmm. the way Virginia Woolf does. Right, and then you know you can have uh, a continent blow up in two lines. <laughs> you can do that absolutely. That used to be Asia. Yeah, and here, here it is. <laughs> yes. now, I remember now a movie. I can't remember which one it is. I think it's the G.I. Joes, where they just, you know, they kind of blow up London like they, like, uh, you know, swatting a, whole, a house line. It happened <laughs> in one of the newest Bonds, too. Remember, right? The downtown London blows up because that was the uh, headquarters for the MI5. Oh yeah, but just no, but just the uh, uh, the building blows no, up. No, no, so not the whole it's city. A, well, a lot of the city. Really? Yeah. Oh, a lot of the city. Yeah, whatever. That's how I remember it. Anyway, we are talking to Edgar Cantero. His new novel is This Body's Not Big Enough for Both of Us. It's quite unique, quite different, quite uh, entertaining. And I'm not going to give away any more. We're not allowed to talk any more or give away any secrets, right? Uh, well, uh... I like to walk into books and into movies with uh, uh, without even uh, reading the synopsis. Yeah, and, and see what happens. So, okay. I invite people to do the same. Very good. Okay, you have been listening to word by word conversations with writers right here on North Bay Public Media KRCB FM with our guest Edgar Cantero and his, as I mentioned earlier, new novel. This body's not big enough for both of us. During the show, Edgar and I chatted about the hard-boiled private eye genre, hermaphrodites, desert gangster lairs, nymphomania, whether or not 11-year-old girls can be femme fatales, the impact speed of an armor-plated Jaguar sedan, and James Bond movies, and of course, true love, all of which can be explored more completely in his new novel. The studio engineer for today's show has been Anthony Garcia. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Podcast facilitator is Mark Prell. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I'm your host, Gil Manser. We would like to invite you to join us for our next word-by-word -word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday, September 9th. Until then, here is a thought-provoking excerpt from Edgar Cantero's This Body's Not Big Enough for Both of Us. Age 17, Zoe's driving to Encino, gets the munchies, decides to drive through a hard rock cafe that didn't have a drive through Do you know the Cadillac's rear sticking out of the wall of every hard rock cafe now? We gave them the idea. We're considering suing.